If you've been listening to the Business of Biotech podcast for a while now, you'll recall that Aaron Harris has joined me to co-host a few episodes. Aaron's my friend, colleague, and chief editor over at sellandgene.com, and she just recently launched a podcast of her own. It's aptly named Sell and Gene, the podcast. And if you're working in the Sell and Gene space, you should give it a listen. It's a collection of interviews with the industry and academic leaders moving the space forward. And you can find it at sellandgene.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Sell and Gene, the podcast. Check it out. Multi-time founder, Dr. Ian Walters could serve up a masterclass on the business of biotech. The current CEO of Portage Biotech has founded about a half dozen life sciences companies on the back of big pharma leadership experience at companies including Takeda and Bristol-Myers Squibb. He also sits on and or chairs a handful of biotech company boards. Uh, the dive into the business and board side of biopharma came shortly after he departed academia, where he earned his MD at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine before doing translational research at Rockefeller University and then moving along to Wharton for his MBA. At Portage, Dr. Walters and his team are building a broad and deep multidisciplinary pipeline, but some of their most important work is on invariant natural killer T-cell agonist liposomal formulations. We'll dig into that and more on this episode of the Business of Biotech. But first, let's learn a bit more about our guest, Dr. Walters. First, I'm honored you could join us and, and thank you. Hey, uh, great to be here, Matt. Thanks. I'm excited to tell you more about what we're doing at Portage and uh, help your followers understand this business of immuno-oncology. Yeah, well, we're, I'm looking forward to the conversation too. But before we dig into the the nuts and bolts of the conversation about Portage, our our, our mutual uh, friend and colleague Alan Shaw has told me a little bit about you, and among other things, he tells me that you are uh, a, a more than proficient drummer, and and he also tells me that that your I believe he told me that your son holds the distinction of hitting the the longest home run in little league. I don't know if it's Little League, Little League World Series history. Am I getting that right, or am I complete? Am I, are my wires completely? Caught? Yeah, when I'm not developing drugs, I'm in the backyard throwing BP. I got two boys playing baseball, and uh, we were lucky. Our team won the state and went to the divisionals in the Little League World Series. And my son hit one over the trees. And the the interview afterwards, they said he hit it halfway to Miami. Wow. That's uh, it, was, it was quite an experience for a 12-year-old uh, to have in his lifetime, efficiently captured by ESPN in every angle and broadcast on online. So if you search up Dustin Walters Little League, uh, you'll see the video on the Little League well, you know, uh, website. Yeah. Well, well I'm definitely going to do my that. Son, so thanks Super. for acknowledging yeah. that and acknowledging all the hours that I spend throwing balls in the backyard. Throwing balls to the point that your uh, the arm is too sore to go in and practice your drums. You you you're you're a drummer as well. That's true. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I came from a background where I grew up working on cars, so I didn't really have any role models in the science or medicine fields. And um, I had played a lot of music. I got accepted to Juilliard, and of course, my parents said, "No pressure. We'll support you if you want to be a musician. Of course, uh, we'd love it if you became a doctor." And now I can say that I do both and I do both well. So I'm excited that I can keep my passion going at the same time that hopefully I can develop treatments to help a lot of cancer patients. 
Yeah, that's excellent. Well, thank you for uh, allowing me to share your proud dad moment too on on your son's home run. That's pretty 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 incredible. So, all right, let's let's turn it away from uh, from 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 baseballs and drums and back into into science. Uh, and again, I I, I want to get to know kind of what drives Dr. Walters a little bit uh, more clearly. Your your background uh, is you know it's comprehensive, right? You've got business chops, clinical uh, bio cl- clinical experience, biotech expertise. Uh, you're a trained MD, PhD, MBA. Um, you've overseen the development of uh, the development process for oncology compounds with pharma leaders like BMS. Um, how, how do you, you know, how, how do you rationalize the the step that you took to found Portage? What, why did you choose to fo- focus exclusively there on on novel immuno oncology discovery and development with this uh, this startup? Yeah, I, I, you know, I try not to focus at the letters after my name. Uh, but I focus on the skills that I've acquired over the years. So I practiced medicine for a while. I obviously spent my time in the lab and even added some business acumen to that. And mm-hmm. it's really how I combine those three different disciplines to try to accelerate the development of new treatments. And um, I think you recall, and you've said that I've spent seven years at Bristol Myers and being there, you really um, helped me develop my kind of own interests in, in a couple of ways. One, you can see what the, uh, un, you know, I don't want to say unlimited, but what a, what you can achieve in a, in a situation where you have plenty of resource. Um, we had essentially acquired products from a small biotech company, so we didn't discover them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we put the full resource and knowledge base of a big international pharma company behind them, brought them to market in record speed. Um, and we, we essentially changed the whole landscape for the treatment of oncology. So in the past, most companies were focused on, you know, attacking the tumor. And when you do that, you know, you would be excited if you could improve survival by, you know, a couple months, you know, cause that was, you know, meaningful. Yeah. Uh, what happened when we shifted our focus from the tumor to the immune system we saw that if we could get the immune system to recognize the cancer, um, we could get patients to survive for years and in fact be cured. Um, and we tended to be less toxic. Mm-hmm. So that really changed our expectation. And a lot of the you know effort in the oncology space has been shifted to how do we get more patients to respond and how do we get them to stay in response for longer periods of time? Um, and, and that really influenced me. I met these patients who were told they had three months to live and they've been alive 10 years and they're in perfect health with very little limitations on, on their lifestyle. So, you know, I really got involved in that and I got involved with that on the strategy side for Bristol-Myers, you know, really looking externally at what was out there and trying to figure out um, how we can bring in new technologies to make advances in this area. And unfortunately, when you're at a big pharma, you know, the decision process is slow. There's a lot of people get, who get involved in decisions. And, and typically, these small companies were not developing the drugs the way a big pharma likes to see them. Right. So they didn't have the right data or they didn't have the, the right, um, you know, types of experiments and, and the right presentation to get a big pharma to want to partner with them. Mm-hmm. That was sort of a light bulb moment for me. I saw that as an opportunity potentially to leave the auspice of a big pharma to go out there and figure out a way to do that. Now, I wasn't the founder of Portage, 
uh, by any means. That company had been founded prior to my arrival. I joined the board first of Portage mm -hmm. and um, actually started developing you know, cancer technologies on the side with the same investors of Portage. And then in 2019, we decided to combine my cancer business with Portage. And now that's the iteration. I then took over running Portage. And now we have a company that's focused on cancer immunotherapy and specifically identifying products that address known resistance to the current standard of care. And these are the standard of care that me and members of my team helped develop when we were at BMS. So we know the area inside and out. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the work that we're doing now really started back when we were uh, uh, working with the big resources of a company like Bristol-Myers. Yeah. Yeah. So traditionally, this has been, uh, you know, the development of novel immunotherapies for, for solid tumors has been pretty, pretty tough. It's been a tough field. Um, what, what's, what's your approach? So give us a little bit, uh, be, be, I guess, a be behind the curtains glimpse of, of what that approach looks like. So, uh, you know, like success is more than just having good science, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of people doing work in this area. And part of what we have really tried to do is to identify promising areas and really figure out from a strategic perspective what's needed to really de-risk and to understand these things first in animals, then in humans, and what experiments are needed to really attract the interest of big pharma. We have, you have to understand that we're in a very unique time frame in this, in this field. We've never seen a situation like what we have today in oncology. And I'll kind of elucidate that. Yeah. Um, so BMS and Merck were really the first to come to the table in this space. They both developed PD-1 antibodies and you fast forward to today, and now there's 14 approved antibodies that address PD-1 as a target. And for our, you know, all intents and purposes, these are very similar products. Mm -hmm. So you have 14 drugs by all the major players in this, in, in this space that are not very well differentiated from each other. Yeah. The only way that these big companies can differentiate is by developing a novel combination. So this is an interesting kind of dilemma for the industry, right? Because these drugs are starting to become more like a commodity, uh, you know, with lack of differentiation. We've always had to develop drugs that were either safer or more effective. And in this case, you have 14 very similar drugs. So, you know, I view that as a business opportunity, right? The companies need to differentiate. They need to define combinations that could... Um, help them differentiate their product over one of the com competitors. And, uh, you know, I really set out with our team to, to try to identify compounds that could do that. And one of the nice things about being some of the pioneers in this space is that we know a lot of the players. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, all the people, well, a lot of the people at the companies that could partner with us and or could acquire these technologies. We know the people in the academic space that are doing the work on the science. And it allows us to, uh, you know, try to pre-vet or pre-understand what the bar and the hurdle is. So we have a pretty good sense of what we need to achieve. Uh, we have a really good understanding of the science from our work. Um, we have a good understanding of what all the competition's doing. And the idea is that, you know, we wanna go out and build a pipeline of products that could be best in class or first in class in this space where we know how 
to develop them and what hurdles we need to achieve. And if we can achieve that, then we want to kill it as quickly as possible because we don't want to get into expensive development um, when there's a very low probability of, of success. Right. So we have this, you know, mantra, which is, you know, we're not doing glorified science experiments. We're doing the experiments we know are going to contribute to uh, helping uh, people make decisions about the future of this, the, these mechanisms and these products that are going to help us gain the confidence of potential pharma partners. And then, you know, then you put the process in place to execute and to execute upon that. And we're in a very unique position, you know, over the past five or six years now, we've built uh, a, a rather large pipeline for a company of our size with very diverse products and technologies. And, um, you know, we have the opportunity in the next, uh, you know, two years to turn over some of these cards, to get some of these data reads and to hopefully, um, you know, build upon our early success in starting a company called Biohaven. I don't know if you're familiar with that company, but that was one of the original uh, successes of, of Portage, where we, you know, started a company. Uh, we guided them through the process of development. Uh, that company was the second largest IPO um, in the year 2017. Is now mm -hmm. a six billion dollar plus company with a commercial product. And we were able to kind of distribute that uh, value creation to our shareholders. Yeah. So I think, you know, with the pipeline that we have now, we have multiple chances to do that again in the oncology space. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the diversity of that pipeline, the breadth and depth of it. Uh, it was that was that strategic? And um, were there any, so two-part question, was that strategic? And were there any sort of guardrails or limitations coming in that you wanted to maintain? Uh, or, or was it just... The, the the breadth and depth of that pipeline sort of a result of not having parameters around around what you were setting out to do. Yeah, well, it was certainly nice to be constrained uh, in, in doing this, right? Like the constraints we had when we were at BMS and, and our other companies that we've all worked at. Mm -hmm. So we started with a blank space, I think, you know, um, but we had clear parameters of where we thought the unmet needs were and what we thought the areas of opportunity. So we mentioned earlier resistance. So we're not looking at everything in the oncology space and we're not looking at everything in the immuno-oncology space. We're looking at what we learned over the years contribute to the mechanisms why certain people don't respond to the existing drugs. Mm -hmm. And they really fall into two or three mechanistic buckets, right? Um, either tumors are cold, immunologically cold, meaning they don't have uh, an existing immune response. So you need to make sure that you can generate an immune response in a, a tumor that doesn't have one already. Uh, so that's a key mechanism. And that involves immune priming and, and, and antigen presentation and things like that. Uh, we also know that tumors exist in an organ. And that organ has a what we call a tumor microenvironment. And many times in that microenvironment are the hostile players that keep the immune cells out and prevent them from killing cancer. So you have to fix the um, immune microenvironment um, and, and the tumor. And, uh, and lastly is, um, you know, an immune, system, immune cell is designed to remove and to attack things that are foreign to the body. And you really don't want your immune cells attacking your normal tissue, right? Mm -hmm. That's how people get autoimmune disease. Um, and in many cases, uh, the um, tumor types uh, 
that respond to immunotherapy are the ones that are the most foreign, meaning they have developed the most mutations. Uh, I'll give you an example. We get skin cancer primarily because we're outside and we're exposed to radiation all the time. It causes a lot of mutations in our skin cells. And one of the most responsive tumor types to immunotherapy is skin cancer. So melanoma was the first tumor type that we got these drugs approved. And it's because they're highly mutated. But if you start looking at things like colon cancer or pancreatic cancer, they tend to have a very low level of mutations and immune therapy has, for the most part, not shown any benefit in those tumor types. So those are kind of key mechanisms that we say, all right, well, we wanna take a, a colon or a pancreatic tumor and we wanna make it recognized by the immune system so that we can leverage the power of this mm -hmm. type of treatment in, in those settings. So we didn't just pull these things out of our backpack, right? Like we, <laughs> we spent yeah. many years, as I said, some of that was while we were at BMS with hundreds of people, you know, kind of helping uh, to understand the landscape to pick, uh, you know, products that, as you said, um, span very diverse technology platforms. You know, we're not, you know, when you're at a pharma company and you have an antibody platform, you tend to develop antibodies. And we said, look, we're starting from scratch. We can develop antibodies, but we can also develop other drugs. Mm -hmm. So we've you know, started with a very focused effort to try to find these key mechanisms and in particular, how to combine these key mechanisms in a single patient. Because the solution, as you might anticipate, is not going to be one drug is going to cure all of cancer. Right. It's going to be a series of products given in, in combination uh, addressing these key mechanisms that really give the most patients the ability to hopefully have a long-term response. And that's really what the goal is, really long-term response, you know, off of treatment, which, you know, we think will translate into effective cures. That's, uh, I, I really appreciate that, uh, that explanation, Dr. Walters, and it, it's, uh, you know, the sort of the simplification uh, of the, of the, of the construct of the company for me. And I'm going to take that simplification one step further, uh, because that's what I tend to do. Think simply. Um, and I'm just going to throw the, the, I guess the observation out there that if I, if I begin a factory with a blank slate and I determine that I want to make, you know, four five, six, eight different parts in that factory, um, I, I create for for myself a, a manufacturing challenge in that I need to have the equipment and infrastructure and personnel to create four or five, six, eight different parts within that factory. So it's much the same when you have a, a wide open, broad, diverse pipeline of candidates. What what's the uh, what what manufacturing challenges did you encounter um, from the get go, and and how are you addressing them? Uh, with such diversity, not not being a one trick. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly, manufacturing is very complex. It's a regulated field, and you know, very early on, we made a strategic decision that it, it doesn't make sense for for us to build that capacity internally. Mm -hmm. Right? It, it's just too complicated. Um, that being said, you know, there are many many different groups that you can partner with and, and create strategic relationships where you can accomplish your goals of making high quality products uh, without building that infrastructure. And that's the decision that we made. And um, yeah, and, and just like you said, there's different expertise even to oversee these contract uh, manufacturers that are needed for somebody to make an antibody versus a small molecule versus a particle, right? right? And one of the, the things that we didn't really talk about in our model 
And it was something very influenced by one of my previous companies, which you mentioned, which was Millennium. It was acquired by Takeda after I left. But the guys who started Millennium and who I worked with started Third Rock Ventures. And if you're a biotechie, you know Third Rock has been extremely successful at building companies. And one of the ways that contributes to their success is their broad network of very senior people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that I admired and I brought to the table in this venture, which is make sure that we have access to the best talent and the best people in every discipline. And it's not, you know, and one of the advantages of having a broad pipeline is that we can sometimes spread the cost out of these people over multiple different products. So it doesn't become prohibitive and it enables us to have, you know, 20 to 30 year veterans working in every area on, on our different products and people that have done very similar products before. So they know where all the potholes are and they know how to avoid those kind of things. Yeah. We've brought on, you know, people as needed on the manufacturing side. We've created strategic relationships with firms that can um, help us in that. And we feel that that's the best way to go in the early phase. I'm not saying that we're going to do that all the way to commercialization. Um, uh, you know, as, as products are advancing, there is a time and a place where you may need to start developing in-house manufacturing capabilities. But certainly when we're doing, you know, animal testing and early human testing, you know, we're very uh, efficient at managing that on an outsourced basis. Yeah. Well, the, the approach seems to be, seems to be working. You had a very busy year and I'm going to, I'm going to turn to my notes uh, so that I don't, don't miss anything here as I rattle off a few uh, portage uh, achievements over the, over the course of the last 12 months, you've uh, you've accelerated operations to achieve some milestones, including uh, your recent NASDAQ listing public offering per first patients dosed in studies of your port three lead assets, interim data from a phase two study of your port one platform. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing some, some, uh, some big milestones that you would add to the list. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot, lots of wood to chop, so to speak. That's a phrase Alan likes to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I highlight a few of the business achievements because I think that's critical to understand uh, as we are planning to, you know, get more data, which is always nice for our clinical assets. But, um, you know, the company not too long ago was listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange. We were trading at 10 cents. And it was majority uh, owned by insiders, which led to the, the challenge that there were very little trading of the stock. Mm -hmm. right? So that made it difficult for institutions to get in. All right. And as part of our strategy, uh, you know, we wanted to grow the business as quickly as can. And the best way to do that is to, uh, you know, attract partnerships with, uh, you know, foundational biotech funds. And mm -hmm. to do that, you know, we were able to consolidate the shares. We were able to uplist to NASDAQ and delist from Canada. So it gets us on a major exchange. As part of that process, we filed a registration statement. We put a shelf in and we put an ATM, all the kind of tools to kind of attract institutional investors. And then just recently we announced our first institutional round mm -hmm. of NASDAQ where we brought in enough resource uh, to extend our runway 
so that we can deliver on the clinic side so I can stop focusing on raising money and focus more of my time on uh, designing clinical trials and interacting with the pharma companies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we really set up the, the company for future growth. And we're able to attract, you know, a good uh, consortium of investors in this round and um, really position the company, you know, by issuing more stock, we improved the liquidity. We were recently added to the Russell Index. So we really kind of fixed a lot on the business side to kind of enable the company to, you know, proceed to the next area of growth, you know, but, you know, even though we're a small lean organization, we don't forget our day job. Uh, so while we were doing all that, you know, we were enrolling patients in studies, getting new drugs into the clinic, um, you know, working with uh, our partners and and so on, because, you know, the real, uh, you know, milestones for any business in our space is clinical data. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're laser focused on is how to get these trials going. It's a little bit challenging with the COVID, you know, the we work internationally. We're not just in the U.S. and different, right? You know, countries did better than others with respect to the COVID crisis. Um, we definitely suffered some setbacks and delays on that front. But you know, we're pushing drugs into human testing. We're trying to get as many patients on study as quickly as we can, so we can get the data that people want to see to understand whether or not these drugs perform as well in the animals as they do in, in humans. Yeah. And that's really the critical thing. I mean, you know, we we didn't talk about this, but, you know, knowing which animal experiments are most likely uh, going to translate to what you see in human, that's important, right? Because we really don't want to waste anyone's time, effort, or resources in doing human studies that don't have a good probability of success. Yeah. So, you know, we focus a lot first on understanding, do we have a real drug? Does it have the right profile? Um, at what dose do you see its effects? Can we achieve those doses in humans? What are the right studies to do? What are the right studies in humans? Because we, we're trying to plot the most efficient line to get us to the point where we can get these drugs commercialized. And that's, that's what we do. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. So tell me, uh, let, let's talk a little bit more, more, I guess, more specifically about some of those uh, candidates. Um, tell me, tell me about port two and port three, the invariant natural killer T cell agonists. Uh, why are they unique? What, what makes them, uh, what, what, why, why, what makes them sort of the, the object of your attention at this point? Yeah, no, thanks. So this was the, the first products that we brought into the company. So we were introduced to the head of immunology at Oxford in the UK mm -hmm. over a 20 year period. Uh, had collaborated with a nonprofit group, the Ludwig Institute, uh, on these and developed five small molecule uh, agonists, which is, means stimulators of a type of immune cell called INKT for short. That stands for invariant natural killer T cell. Right, so that's a mouthful. I'm going to use INKTs from now on. Yeah. And as you can imagine, you know, it's got NK in it. 
and people sometimes get them confused with natural killer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also has a T in it and it has some features of a T cell as well. So it's this interesting cell type that bridges both two arms of the immune system that we, we, we think are very important in, in fighting cancer. The NK part, which is sort of the innate or the first line of defense against cancer, meaning that you know these cells can directly kill cancer. They sit in your tissue. They're out there um, surveilling the body for cancer. I'll give you an example. In mice, you know, this is how we typically try to understand things. So we knock out the cells. So we have two groups of, of mice, one that have uh, INKT cells and one that don't. Mm-hmm. And then you give it a cancer challenge. And the animals that don't have these cells develop cancer and the ones that do don't. Right? So it tells you that these cells are pretty important, right? They're out there surveilling the body for cancer and they're able to kind of clear a cancer challenge. Yeah. So you have that kind of, which is the innate part of the immune system, right? They sit in the tissue, they, they monitor for abnormal cells. But what's also very interesting is they work to drive an adaptive immune response as well. So that adaptive part is, you know, just like the immune response, you need to clear COVID or a virus, which involves, and everyone seems to know more about immunology today than they knew two years ago. Sure. You know, it involves T cells and involves antibodies and all that other stuff. Um, the INKTs can actually promote an adaptive response, which includes activation of multiple other cell types besides um, NK cells. And uh, you know, get a B cell and a T cell response and so on and so forth. So you really have this really broad reprogramming of the immune response, but we're not done there. We talked a little bit about tumor microenvironment before. Um, we also have some data that the, this, these agonists can reprogram the tumor microenvironment. So it takes some of the suppressor cells that are holding the immune system back and it down modulates those. Mm-hmm. So you're you know, promoting all these good cells to fight cancer and you're you know, decreasing some of the bad cells that prevent the immune system from clearing cancer. So it's pretty interesting stuff, uh, you know, and then, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about um, PD-1 therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in fact, um, you can take a cancer cell. Now, PD-1 antibodies tend to work better in tumors that express PD-L1. So that's obviously the target of the antibody. Um, and we can take tumor cells in the Petri dish and expose them to our drug, the INKT agonist, PORT2. And we upregulate this PDL1 on the surface. So we're essentially converting a tumor that's negative and wouldn't typically respond to a PD1 inhibitor to one that's positive. And when um, you give our drug in the animal models, um, you can see an animal that's resistant to PD1, which is the standard of care, which is selling about $20 billion annually. You know, very potent drugs work great. You take an animal that doesn't respond to that drug you give the combination of our drug and that same PD-1 therapy, and all of a sudden you restore sensitivity mm-hmm. to that drug, which really, you know, is pretty interesting because not only uh, do you, you know, a potential partner that works with us be able to sell our drug, we're going to make them sell more of their own PD-1. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of commercial implications to these studies. So in a nutshell, without going too crazy into the immunology, um, you know, we're really excited about the mechanism here. It's very, you know, it's different. It's not what any, you know, many other companies are doing. 
Um, it really represents a broad way of, of uh, reprogramming that immune response and the tumor microenvironment and the tumor cell directly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've designed some really interesting trials to kind of prove all those things in a single trial in our first in human study. It's really somewhat unprecedented, you know, where we uh, are taking a drug, we're going to, uh, you know, evaluate what's a safe dose. And then we go right into randomized studies where we compare our drug alone to a PD-1 to the combination of the two. So you'll really get a good sense of why, you know, do these drugs work by themselves, which they certainly do in the animals, and do they add anything to the current standard of care drugs beyond what they can achieve themselves? Yeah. We're, we're excited about those trials starting and, and uh, you know, getting to some of these endpoints as quickly as we can. Yeah, a lot, a lot of wood to chop yet, as, as Alan Shaw would say. Um, so, so PD one to start with. What about other other combinations? What other combinations are you looking at? And obviously, you can't tackle them all in clinical studies, uh, in in one fell swoop. But are there are you know is is there the potential for additional layers of clinical study of of, of more? Uh, yeah, high, I mean, high target. Like I said, I mean, like, I'll try to give you an analogy. And since I worked on cars, I'm going to use in a car analogy. I like it. Uh, uh, getting an immune response against cancer is like driving a race car. Okay. Mm -hmm. You need three components to do well in a race. You need to have an expert driver, right? So you need to be able to instruct the immune system on what's a cancer cell, what's a healthy cell. Cause we don't want the immune system attacking all your normal tissues. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you need to have somebody pressing on the gas, right? That's, priming and boosting the immune response, right? And these INKT things really press on the gas, right? They do a fantastic job of that. And then lastly, you need someone taking your foot off the brake, right? Because if your brakes are locked, the car's not really going to go that far. Right. Uh, and that's what the PD-1 drugs do. They take the foot off the brake. So um, when you think about that, you know, we want to make sure that every patient gets a little bit of all three. And they may have some already before they, you know, come to us, or they may not. And that's kind of what our job is to try to figure out. Uh, so the PD-1 combo is a natural one because we want to, you know, something to take the foot off the brake. Now, is that the only checkpoint or brake signal out there? Absolutely not. But right now, it's the most commonly used with, uh, you know, approvals in 16 different tumor types. Mm -hmm. So that's the natural first step. Um, we're clearly interested in studying combinations with, with other things that remove the brake signal. Um, you know, as far as the expert driver, right? So we, have, we didn't really talk about port three, but mm -hmm. port three is uh, a unique co-formulation of our INKT agonist, the same one in port two, with the tumor antigen, right? So the tumor antigen is, is a way of kind of steering the immune system on what it should attack and what it should leave alone. So we have uh, that combination in a single product. That's part of port three. And we started that clinical trial and we were really lucky to receive a grant from the EU to develop that product. So it's a kind of, you know, a neat, neat way to develop multiple products. We picked our antigen as NYESA1, I don't know if you've heard of that antigen. It's expressed as a cancer testes antigen. It's expressed in a whole bunch of different tumor types. Uh, we have IP against that antigen and all the other known antigens too. So if we see proof of concept with that product, we can go 
and quickly put four or five more new products into the clinic with different antigens. Yeah. Um, and then lastly is, uh, you know, kind of a new strategy, which this, you know, recent fundraise is enabling us to start thinking about, which is cell therapy. I don't know how interested you are in cell therapy and how much you followed, but there's a lot of excitement about cell therapy, right? Yeah. Certain um, blood tumors, uh, we're seeing response rates 70, 80, 90%. Um, hasn't been so lucky in the context of, of solid tumors, right? Because these tumors sit in a microenvironment and, you know, they're easy to attack when they're floating around in the blood and you inject the cells in the blood um, harder when they have to get into an organ and, and fight the cancer. But there's been some really interesting work on this cell type in, in, um, as a cell therapy. So I'm sure you heard of CAR T cells. You might've heard of CAR NK cells. Mm-hmm. But there's now CAR NKT cells. Okay. And the part about this particular cell therapy, it's off the shelf, right? These are not cells that you have to take out of the body and expand them and then re-give back the same cells to the same patient. These are cells that you can get universal donors, expand them, and then have an off-the-shelf product. So we've begun to study combinations with uh, cell therapy, and we've seen very interesting kind of results. One is we can help during the manufacturing process. So while the cells are you know, being manufactured, we can help create more cells and help them educate them to be more cancer fighting. And we're starting to think about studying them in combination when the cells are reinfused to the patient. Because not only can we activate the transplanted cells, we can activate a lot of the endogenous cells as well. So yeah. those are some of the initial thinkings on, on combos. You know, I, I still firmly believe it's not gonna be a single product right? That's going to help everybody. And the goal is to try to rationally design combinations, understanding the immune system, understand what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked and how we can try to advance the field. Yeah. You've got to have a, so with that, with that philosophy in mind, you've got to have a a pretty, um, a pretty, a pretty strong level of confidence. I would say I'm, 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 I'm assuming in uh, your ability to make good calls on, on winners and potential losers. Uh, I mean, I, I would think anyway. So tell me about that. What goes into, you know, Dr. Ian Walters thought process around, okay, here's a combination that I think we should invest our hard earned resources in. Uh, here's a combination that perhaps I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, developing a drug, and it's funny, a friend of mine used an analogy, is like uh, driving a truck full of gold across a minefield, right? You know you got something valuable when you start, but if you mm-hmm. can't get to the other side, it doesn't really matter, right? And, um, you know, the, our team, you know, has been involved in, in a lot of drugs, uh, you know, over the years in my career alone, um, I've helped five cancer drugs get to the other side and get approved. Mm-hmm. And you learn a lot about, you know, how to do that process. Um, so picking, uh, you know, either drugs or technology to bring in or uh, trials design, all that stuff is an exhaustive process where you try to evaluate all the data. And a, a good mentor of mine uh, always uh, reinforced more data doesn't enable better decisions, right? You get stuck. And oftentimes I saw this in, in the big pharma space and just, well, yeah, but if we had more data, maybe we would do the things this way. And then you could be in that position forever and ever, 
and just yeah. keep on saying we need more data, we need more data, and 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 you get stuck and you don't really advance stuff. And what's nice about being in this entrepreneurial environment is you know you could take bigger risks and um, you know and you base that on your decision making and your experience. Um, so you know I, I would say um, in in the field of drug development, about twenty percent of it is picking the right stuff. Okay. The other 80% is knowing what to do when things don't go right. <laughs> because it's not a straight line. Things never go exactly like you plan them. And then the question is, what next? Mm-hmm. Okay, what do we do? You know, we, we thought this experiment would, do, would say something and it doesn't. Does that mean we call it quits? Does that mean there's another experiment that we could do? Does that mean we rethink everything we know? Uh, and, and how do you navigate, you know, the ups and downs? I think that's really, you know, the majority of what it takes to develop successful products. And, and again, you know, having been down this process so many times and bringing diversity of opinions to the table uh, really help us to kind of make good decisions. So I don't know if that answered your question, but, um, you know, it is... Uh, it is definitely a challenging job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And this is kind of back to my introduction where my, not only my medicine and my science experience comes to play, but also my business experience and, you know, effectively leading these teams to make these difficult decisions and to figure things out. Um, and, and we know that not everything is going to succeed, right? So from the get-go, and I apologize for the sirens in the background. That's okay. As long as it's not your building that's on fire, we're, we're good. We're all good. Um, you know, we said that we wanted to have uh, a bunch of programs that we can do because we, you know, we see this peril where companies uh, only have one product. And even though the data is saying, you know, you probably should call it quits, you know, the scientific founders, the investors, nobody wants to walk away. So mm-hmm. they- going and throwing good money after bad, hoping that they can find, it's like, it's like playing, uh, you know, poker and you're waiting, you know, you keep betting with the hopes that you're going to pull a card at the very end. You know, that, that's not the way we operate. We have a lot of things going. We take a very structured and disciplined approach. And if we can't, and we think that the probability is very low that, you know, a given product or strategies that succeed, you know, we'll try to monetize it but we're not going to put our resources towards that. We're going to focus our resources where we think we have the highest probability and chance of success. Yeah. And if the, and if the, the gold, the, the truck full of gold taps a mine along the way, you get, get out of the truck and scoop up what you can and, and figure out what's next. Absolutely. I don't know if that's a, <laughs> I don't know if that's an, an accurate, you know, parallel with that, uh, with that analogy. It is. I mean, um, like I said, it, you know, it is a difficult business, right? I mean, if you look at the pure stats on developing drugs, I think one in 10,000 succeed. The average cost is $2 billion to develop a drug. You know, this is a high risk, high reward business. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people that made money on biotech companies. Yeah. If you can discharge risk efficiently and, you know, you can minimize the amount of money that you're putting at risk at any one point until you have more confidence, which is what we do, you know, with these early experiments. And then you're really 
you know, then focusing the, the larger investment on things that have a much higher probability of success. And we don't need everything to succeed for our investors to make money, right? Um, so, you know, we think we're in a good business and we think we have developed a good strategy to, to return, you know, money to our investors. And we've shown that we can do that again with companies like Biohaven. Mm-hmm. We can do it again. Excellent. Well, I uh, we're, we're running short on time here, Dr. Walters, but before I let you go, I do want to give you an opportunity to just give me an update on what we can expect to see next out of Portage. Uh, if there are any, any, anything newsworthy coming up or any, any points you'd like to bring up that we should be looking out for. Yeah. So um, look, I think Portage today is a lot different than Portage even six or eight months ago. So we're now, you know, NASDAQ listed company with institutional backing with two years of runway Mm -hmm. um, in the bank, which will enable us to take advantage of the pipeline we built and the experience of our team uh, in in doing this. So I think we're in a unique position right now where uh, with our diverse pipeline, and we didn't even get to talk about things beyond port two and three. I know, yeah, uh, well... We, Many we'll, other ports and other other technologies, maybe for another time. Yes, well, uh, I was I was just thinking that you know, uh, as you know, Alan is uh, is a regular uh, guest of mine on this podcast. He comes on quite frequently. Uh, between he and you, um, a part two is certainly uh, certainly in the works. Great, yeah, no, Alan yeah. has made a huge contribution to our success. So uh, you know, we're in a position now where in the next eighteen to twenty four months. You know, we're expecting, you know, greater than 10 phase two trials to read out. Yeah. Uh, any one of which can be transformational to the company. So the key, you know, with all these business moves that we made was to position the company for growth. You know, we have now a, a much broader institutional base that, you know, should we see the next cure to cancer come through our desk, which, you know, we're always reviewing stuff. We now have, you know, a bigger backing to kind of take advantage of that. We have enough resources now to take advantage of what we currently have. Uh, our goal is really to put one to two new drugs into human testing every year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just to benchmark that, that was the same goal that BMS Oncology had. You know, mm-hmm. and here we are, a small little biotech entrepreneurial company. We're able to kind of do that through our creative model. So, uh, you know, as far as looking forward, you know, stay tuned. Look at all the oncology meetings. We should be there with our data with our products, we, you know, we continue to meet with pharma partners and other strategic partners to kind of advance our mission. We continue to evaluate new products and the hope that we can make a dent in this, this space. I mean, you know, everybody's been touched by cancer. You know, we're reminded every day. I just went to a funeral last week of, uh, you know, a, a friend who, my age, young kids who's dying, mm-hmm. uh, which reminds me my work is not done. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people out there that need, need our help. So my goal is to try to do the best I can to advance exciting technologies, get into the patients who need it, and, uh, you know, to try to make a dent in my lifetime. My dad doesn't know why I don't want to be a doctor anymore. <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, I said, look, Dad, I've got five drugs approved uh, over the course of my early career. I still got room to go. And mm-hmm. I, w- I helped way more people than I could have helped as a practicing physician. And I'm not done yet. Yeah. 
Well, I uh, I respect the work you're, that you're doing, Dr. Walters. I thank you for it. It's very important work, and I I congratulate you on the success of Portage to date, and I and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. I encourage anybody if they want to learn more about the company to, to view our website. It's www.portagebiotech.com, and uh, certainly reach out on any of our social channels. Excellent. So that's Portage Biotech CEO, Dr. Ian Walters. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in association with Cytiva. Check out Cytiva at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com where I'd be ecstatic if you'd subscribe to my newsletter. And finally, if you like what you heard here today, subscribe to the podcast, give us five stars, and thank you for listening.